Our passage this morning will come from the book of Mark, if you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 31. The Word of God says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling, to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory with his, of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they, are, until they see the kingdom of God after it comes with power. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord's day and the opportunity to hear from your word. We pray that you would feed us your word this morning through the voice of Pastor Dan. We pray that you would help us to hear and be alert and attentive as we listen. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Last week, we finally saw it. We heard the true confession that Jesus is the Christ. As we said, we've been moving towards that now for the first eight chapters of Mark as Mark answers the question, who is Jesus? Mark himself answers it for us in the very first 12 words of the text. But now as he moves forward, we keep seeing people get it wrong until we finally come to Peter. Peter answers for the group when Jesus asks, well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the Messiah. And today we'll see that with a proper confession of Jesus, with a true understanding of the Messiah, we also come to a new and a true understanding of discipleship. That is to say that our Christology, that the study of Christ, what we, we say and we know about Jesus Christ, it is united in this sort of symbiotic way to what we know about discipleship. But what is true about Christ, what is revealed about him as a Messiah, we find to be true about our discipleship in relationship to him. So that when a believer confesses who Jesus really is, they are also inevitably confessing what they must become. If you remember when Peter makes that statement, you are the Christ, Matthew records it a little differently than Mark. In Matthew, we see that when Peter makes that statement, you are the Christ, that Jesus pronounces on him a divine benediction. He says, blessed are you, Peter. He receives that divine benediction and he receives it because Peter, in that moment, Jesus reveals to him, it's not flesh and blood that taught you this. 
You didn't come to be my disciple. You did not come to understand my identity through your own will, your own might. It is not flesh and blood that taught you this, but it is the Father. He's the one who has revealed it to you. So in Matthew, we see with that confession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ comes a divine benediction. But in Mark, we also see that it imposes a claim upon his life. It comes with a call to discipleship. In our text now, the disciples have confessed that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that indeed he is the Christ, that he's the promised one, he is the anointed one, he is the Messiah, the conquering warrior, the king of kings. All of this is included in this idea of the Messiah. And Mark as he records, probably as if you remember, he's probably taking the first-hand account of Peter and giving that to us. And so in this record, as soon as Peter confesses Jesus is Lord, Jesus immediately pivots and begins to tell him what his messiahship is going to look like, what it means for him to be a messiah. This is that direction turn that, that, we've, that we talked about that Mark is going to do as we sort of went back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, as it were, back and forth, who is, who is this Jesus, until we come to his identity. And then it says that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. We'll see here, he's headed for the cross. That's the direct line, the direct path that he is now making. And we see that in how quickly he turns in this confession of who he is and to now teaching Peter that he would understand what that means, what it means for him to be the Messiah. Jesus is going to deal very directly with them on what that means. And so we come now into our text Verse 31, you heard it read for you, said, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He jumps right into it with this title of the Son of Man. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He's called himself this before, if you remember, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, when he was establishing that he was present, therefore his kingdom is present. The Son of Man is a title that comes from Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And it says that the Son of Man will be one who comes, who is ruling and reigning in heaven. And he is going to come to earth and establish dominion, establish authority. He will be that mighty warrior. He will be that conquering king. And so Jesus claims that moniker. In fact, it's Jesus' favorite title that he calls himself as the Son of Man. And so he claims that, that he will come and be sent from the ancient of days. And yet now we see his identity more clearly because attached to it are these words that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus' mission and thus his identity and then following that, our discipleship, we're going to see three categories, three things that are true about it. That that Jesus' messiahship is going to be marked first by sacrifice. It'll be marked by sacrifice. This is at the heart 
of the messianic mission. It's at the heart of salvation is sacrifice. You need to understand here, Peter and the disciples as Jews, they would understand that the Messiah is coming. This would have been taught to them. They, they would have had a recollection of it. And there's lots of images in the Old Testament that would probably be in their mind of a shepherd as a king, as a warrior, that he is coming. And Jesus says this, Messiah is the son of man. He puts it under that moniker. But then what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take a second image that we see in the Old Testament and that of the suffering servant. That Jesus must suffer, that he must be rejected, that he is going to die, that he's going to come as a suffering servant. And for Peter, for the Jewish people, for the disciples, this is the first time that they're going to see these two identities merged into one. That under the moniker of Son of Man would be Jesus as the suffering servant. That does not make sense to them. They've been waiting for, for hundreds of years, at least in the last 800 some years as Israel has been conquered and occupied and they've been taken as captive and they've moved around and then you come to those years of silence the 400 years of silence leading up to the New Testament and there's been up to that point before the silence this prophetic voice of Messiah is coming one who is coming and he's going to make things right he's going to restore the nation. He, he's going to bring justice. He's going to bring peace. And so they are expecting the conquering king. And Jesus says, yes, he's here, the son of man. But my messiahship looks like this, like the suffering servant. And as he goes through the list of things, he says that Jesus must suffer many things, be rejected. He's going to be killed. And he would rise from the dead. Wow, that's the gospel message right there. Jesus gave his disciples a crash course there on the passion of Christ, the heart of the gospel. And you see in verse 32, it says, he said it to them plainly. You know, Jesus up to this point has been teaching and kind of puzzles and, and parables and ways that, that he's, he's teaching truth, but it's somewhat veiled. But, but now he moves beyond that and he teaches clearly. He states plainly to them. Look, it's important we see this. Verse 31, he goes, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. That he must be rejected. That he must die. He puts that emphasis, like this has to happen. These things must happen. They were not just a potential outcome of Jesus. It wasn't just a danger that, that came along with the gig of being the Messiah. This was the job itself. This was the mission itself. This is what made up his Messiahship, is that he would come to die. This had to happen. And when we see it must happen because if, because of our sin, the, the wrath of God has come. We become a curse and the penalty for that sin is death. The penalty is, is death. And if the Father is going to reverse the curse, if he is going to offer redemption, it is going to take death. And if we were to suffer and die for our sin, there's going to be nothing redemptive about that. We're just getting our just desserts. 
And so one must come who is, is holy and who is just and who does not deserve it. And he must be rejected and he must suffer and he must die. This must happen, Jesus is saying. I'm coming as the Messiah, but my Messiahship is not marked by majesty and glory and power. It is first marked by humility and suffering and rejection. He speaks a little clearer about that rejection when he says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. He lists all three of them here. Because these are kind of the three most important ruling bodies in the Jewish, uh, the Jewish religious people. And together, you put these three together and they form what is called the Sanhedrin. And that would be like the highest court, the most respected court, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And so in saying this, Jesus is, is telling Peter, I'm not going to come and die on the battlefield. I, I'm not going to be overtaken by some criminal act or some mob, but it is going to be the best, most religious, and charged people of the Jews. And I will stand in court, and I, I will go through all the procedures, and all of this must happen. And I will be rejected by the Jewish leaders. It will be a total and complete rejection. I think the shocking nature of it, the offensive nature of it, is, can be lost on us a little bit. Because we kind of, well, we have the whole story here. We've heard the gospel enough. But you, the shocking and offensive nature of that to Peter and the disciples, that this long-awaited Messiah, the one who is going to come and set them free, how is that possible if he's going to be rejected, suffer, and die? I got here real early this morning. It's very dark in this building. When it's dark outside, there's no lights on. In fact, it's a little spooky. Um, and so I was walking around in the dark for a minute, and I came in here to turn these lights on. And so I'm coming up the steps, I'm kind of stubbing my toes along, this stage is full of stuff, so I'm bumping into things as we go along, because it's dark. Then I turn the lights on, and okay, now I see where everything is. This is how the Old Testament is without the New Testament. It, all the features are there in the Old Testament. All the pieces of furniture are put in there. And so it, it's filled in. There's all kinds of, of truth about Jesus as the Messiah, as the suffering servant. All of these prophecies that will find their fulfillment in Jesus. All these promises that will find their yeses in Jesus. All these types and pictures that point to Jesus Christ. But until we have the New Testament, all the pieces are there. But it's sort of the lights aren't on yet. And so the furniture's there, but you don't know how it's arranged, and so you are just kind of, you know, somewhat blindly feeling your way around. But then the lights come on, and it all makes sense. Well, this is Jesus for the first time for Peter and his disciples flipping the lights on. That all the prophecies that find their yes in Jesus include the suffering servant are going to be made sense of are going to be fulfilled differently than how they were ever putting the pieces together before. 
So Peter then responds. I mean, Jesus has never been the messianic teacher that the people thought he was going to be. Like he didn't come expounding the Torah and giving more tradition surrounding the Torah. Instead, he, he simplified the law and said, here is what it means and here is what it points to. Instead of propping up the religious leaders, he, he talked about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and how the nearness of, of God's love and God's forgiveness was here both for Jew and for Gentile. So he's not ever been the Messiah that they expected. And when Peter hears this, he rebukes Jesus. Verse 32, and Peter took him aside, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. This is not a mild response. This is a forceful response. It's the same word here, the, the rebuke that Jesus gives to the demons when he's casting out demons earlier in Mark is the same rebuke that Peter gives here to Jesus. It was wholly inappropriate. I mean, there, there's a time and a place for a student, someone to question a teacher. I get that from time to time after a sermon, and that's wholly appropriate. Someone comes up, they maybe are uncertain the way I interpreted something or whatever it might be, and that is healthy and wholly appropriate. Unless you feel like that's your spiritual gift to me, then it's not that cool. But <laughs> if it happens here or there. <clears throat> but it would be a whole other thing as if as soon as I'm done, if you come up, pull me aside, and you just start rebuking me. I mean, unless I'm preaching another gospel, but if I say the date of Mark is, you know, probably written around 64, and you're convinced it's 66, and you just let me have it, th that would be very inappropriate. And that's what Peter does. He, as soon as he draws him aside and he starts rebuking him, let alone after Peter has just made the confession that, that you are the Messiah. You, you are the God incarnate. You are the divine one sent to rescue us. And Peter is rebuking him. And so while we know it's wholly inappropriate at the same time, I think you can sympathize a little bit with Peter that this is just such different news than he was expecting to hear after all of this following of Jesus and being in the dark and not sure who he was and Jesus rebuking them about having hard hearts and blind eyes and now he finally gets it he finally confesses and then this news is is dropped on him so in here we see kind of the second thing that marks Jesus messiahship and our discipleship first is sacrifice second is the idea of submission. The idea of submission. The heart of Jesus and his mission was in complete submission to God the Father. That's partly why he must suffer and die. And so that is partly why you see the seriousness of what Peter is doing here is that he is unknowingly, unwittingly, I would say, trying to thwart the Father's will. It's interesting. In fact, it's really the same thing that Satan does to Jesus in the temptation. If you remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and, and Satan comes to him and offers a few different temptations and basically he's saying, establish your kingdom, inaugurate your kingdom now in power. 
There's no need to suffer here. There's no need to walk through all this difficulty. Just right now in power, do this. Establish your authority. Provide for yourself. Inaugurate your kingdom as a display of power, not in submission to the Father. R.C. Sproul, in his comments on the section of the temptation of Jesus Christ, says, the heart of this temptation was the acquisition of a throne without the experience of pain and suffering. Basically, Satan is offering Jesus, tempting him in this moment, establish your kingdom without the cross. Come to power without the cross. Forget God's plan. Forget that you have been sent to die. Forget that you are marching toward the cruel cross. Forget what God has ordained. Forget about the prophecies. You can have your kingdom without the cross, Jesus. But we see that the plan of Jesus is not up for negotiation. And Peter here unwittingly is doing the same thing, offering that same sort of stumbling blocks that we're throwing in front of Jesus as Satan did. Have your kingdom, establish your kingdom, but do it without the pain and the suffering. Do it without the cross. It's kind of uh, an eerie moment at the end of the temptation of Satan. It says that you know Jesus overcomes the temptation. Satan moves away, but it says that he moved away until an opportune time. It seems like here is an opportune time, right after the confession that Jesus is the Lord. We again, this sort of temptation is put before Jesus, a kingdom without a cross. And I think that is why Peter's rebuked so forcefully by Jesus in that moment and says, Get behind me, Satan. You will not thwart the plan of the Lord. Anything that turns Jesus from the cross, anything that minimizes the necessity of the cross, anything that devalues the accomplishments of Christ on the cross, anything that opposes the cross is of darkness, is evil. He says in there that in verse 32, turning it, he began to rebuke him, but turning aside, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is looking at it from a holy man perspective, from a temporal, human, worldly perspective, not from the perspective of the Lord. And that's really going to set up this call to discipleship. It's because what he's going to call Peter to and call the whole crowd to is that they deny themselves and take up their cross. Not that they do everything possible to avoid the cross. Because the DNA, the heart of sin is this selfishness and self-focus. This promotion of self, this avoidance of anything difficult. It's seeing, being our own God, seeing things from our perspective and not God's perspective. It's why we covet. It's why we murder. It's why we lie. It's why we cheat. Or at least Jesus says those things take place in our heart. It's because we're seeing things from our perspective. We are trying to avoid the cross and get our own glory. 
And so when Christ calls us then to deny ourselves, to submit to him, it's actually a call of grace. Jesus is rescuing us from us. That we give ourselves, our lives to a pursuit that would actually destroy us and kill us. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, it might sound like a hard call, but it is a call of grace. And so it is marked by sacrifice, it's marked by submission, and finally, our discipleship is marked by conformity. Following the Messiah means that we conform to the Messiah. A life of discipleship with Jesus will involve radical self-denial and taking up your cross. You remember when Jesus says, follow me, he is eyes set for Jerusalem. He is headed towards the cross. That is where we are following him too. Jesus then introduces the idea of a cross here. Verse 34. Jesus, if you can, the picture, he's talking to Peter and the disciples. And some, kind of out of nowhere then, we, we find out, oh, there's a crowd. And so he calls the crowd to him. And people have been following Jesus for a while now. He can't get away from the crowds, but they're just interested in what he can do for them, the healing that he can bring, the, the provision that he can bring for them. And so now he takes the whole crowd, and as he heads to Jerusalem, he lets them know, if you're going to follow me, if anyone's going to come after me, here's what he must do. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This idea of the cross, for us, you know, we think of the cross as become like a, an, an emblem for us. Maybe you see it in jewelry. Maybe it's thrown away and around in real, I don't know, you have an annoying coworker, and that's your cross to bear, you know, in real sort of mundane settings. The cross, as they would have heard it, would have been a very a much more hideous thing to take your cross. It was a form of torture and death penalty that the people would have been very aware of. And the idea of carrying the cross is just that, that the victim, whoever it would be, would get the cross beam that would go up on the cross and they would have to carry that cross beam to the place of their death. We see Jesus did that as he carried the cross and so crucifixion, dying on a cross, was a hideous form of death, and it was reserved for the worst of people, the lowest class of people. And this isn't a theoretical moment, a theoretical thing for the immediate audience of Mark. When Mark is telling them to take up their cross, you remember we're in like the mid-early 60s AD, Nero the emperor is, on the th is, is ruling in Rome. Nero's lost his mind and all kinds of crazy things are happening and he's decided, I'm going to blame it all on the Christians. They will be my scapegoat. I'll distract on all my bad decisions by blaming it on these Christians. And so when the crops don't do well, it's the Christians' fault. When there's a fire that burns some of the city, it's the Christians' fault. And history tells us that Christians are being crucified. They're being publicly crucified for being disciples of Christ. It's not a theoretical thing for these initial audience to hear. If you're going to follow me, this is the 
cost. You deny yourself. You take up your cross and you follow me. How do we think about it for ourselves? Taking up our cross willingly, intentionally is a path that leads to opposition, shame, suffering, and death. It can be hard to put ourselves in that context because it feels like taking up your cross is not just, you know, stubbing your toe or some difficulty. It is hardship for the sake of Christ. It is that opposition, that that shame, that rejection that comes for the sake of following Jesus Christ. It means the same that we deny Peter's statement or Satan's statement like, like Christ. We don't go for glory without the cross. It means that we take up that cross and follow Christ. That our life is not built around from man's perspective avoiding risk, avoiding hurt. That it's not built around accumulating things, accumulating possessions. Or I think what motivates a lot of people is affirmation. That we're affirmed by our coworkers, that we're affirmed by our friends, that we're affirmed by whatever. And we can organize our life and we can start making decisions and setting priorities based on accumulation of things, based on affirmation from other people, based on avoiding risk and, and avoiding insecurity and avoiding... That's not the way of discipleship. That's not the way of the cross. Calvin, John Calvin, as he writes in his commentary of 1 Peter, says, God has so instituted the church from the very beginning that death is the way to life and the cross is the way to victory. It gets left out of the gospel presentation, especially in an American-type setting, that part of proclaiming Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior, as our King, comes with a call to discipleship that includes taking up your cross and following him. And yet we're surprised that we would ever have difficulty or hardship, it seems like, that that we would just, why would we ever expect that? That would be so unfair that we would face that. And yet that is the way of the disciple is through the cross, through denial of self. And quickly, we'll see the last few verses then expound that for us. Why do we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him? Well, for verse 35, these next three phrases all start with four. It's a purpose clause. This, this is why we do it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will save it. You can work your whole life to avoid that insecurity, to get some affirmation, to to save yourself from any suffering and pain. For for what end? That that, that in the end you lose it. You, You lose that life you're working so hard to save. It's a picking, which one will you serve? This age or the inbreaking kingdom? Will you serve Christ the King in the age to come. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
the accumulation of, of things. I mean, that, that our happiness will come when we just get the new car, when we just get the, the new, whatever it is. The, the life of discipleship is not around, centered around the accumulation of things. Because in the end, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world? If it's all his, he conquers it all. I read a <clears throat> book not too long ago called The Tycoons. And it's like the age of Carnegie and Rockefeller and Vanderbilt, J.P. Morgan. There's like a small group of men. And it's amazing how they just controlled so much of the wealth and the jobs and the stock market and because of that decisions on war and battle and all kinds of stuff there's these few men who had it all i don't know the state of their souls but i know it profits them none to have all that and to lose their immortal soul made in the image of god you can accumulate everything. But it's in the day-to-day, we lose that bigger focus and we just become narrowly, narrowly focused on avoiding pain, avoiding an awkward situation, avoiding suffering, accumulating this, accumulating that. And you look back and you think, man, I've been unfaithful to my call of discipleship simply so I get the affirmation of a coworker I don't even like of a neighbor who I barely know. I don't want them to think uh, ill of me. I don't want them to think I'm weird. So, and you set your life up. You look at your way that you spend your time. You look at the way that you spend your money and your resources. And is it all from man's perspective? Is it all, I own this, this is mine, this is wholly mine? Maybe if I have a little bit of leftover resources or time, I'll think kingdom things but and he's saying no denying yourself to think from God's perspective take up your cross and follow me and then verse 38 really hits heavy it says for whoever is ashamed of me and of my world and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. I'll just let that one hang there. We're quick to sugarcoat those things. Well, here's what he really means. He says it here. You live ashamed of me. Then the son of man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels when he returns, when he comes to judge the living and the dead. When you build your own kingdom and everything is built around your personal success and your personal reputation, and you claim Jesus Christ as your Messiah, and you want the divine benediction, but you don't want the imperative to follow. He's the son of man and with that proclamation that Jesus is my Lord comes a divine benediction and comes the command to follow me, to take up your cross. And they both belong to being a disciple of Christ. <clears throat> we go into chapter 9, verse 1. You can tell verse and book numbers are not inspired in, in the scripture. This verse can be a little puzzling. I, I think it belongs with 
uh, chapter 8 here, though some people move it to the next text. Jesus responds then, kind of a final word to his disciples. He says, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So he's talked about the weakness and the humility and the enter the kingdom of God through the cross. But then this kind of promise that some of you won't die before you see the kingdom of God come in power. It, it eliminates that it's the second coming of Jesus when he comes in full power. So there's a few options. One of them is that he's speaking towards the transfiguration, which happens later on in the chapter. And he's talking about this revelation of Jesus Christ in the transfiguration. And that there, there are people there who they won't die before they see this revelation. I tend to think it's speaking more just to the resurrection and what that signifies. Because he's already told them that he would rise again. And there you see that victory over sin and that victory over death. And so the kingdom of God, which begins in that, in the weakness and his humiliation then, will move to his exaltation. He's saying some of you, you'll still be alive when you see the kingdom of God and you'll start to see the glimpses of it in its power. In the resurrection, that'll be mine. The resurrection will be yours because of it. The establishment of a church that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against. You, you will see it, maybe not that fully consummated kingdom when Christ returns, but in the resurrection is the guarantee and the promise of it. And so I think that that's what he's indicating there is in, in chapter 9 is this, yes, it, it begins in weakness, but it does not end in weakness or defeat, it ends in great power. If we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord, then the cross defines us. It it defines who we are as Christians. It defines how we understand Jesus as our Messiah. And it it defines how we are to follow him. Might we boldly stand and proclaim in our, our proclamation that Jesus is the God, that he is our Savior, that he is our only hope, that we both stand and receive that divine benediction and at the same time happily receive that call of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him so we might know the power of the kingdom Christ will not be ashamed of us when he returns. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, we acknowledge you are our Savior. You are our King. Lord, we realize the blessing that that is. Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, given us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. So we receive that divine, blessed benediction, Lord. We thank you for that privilege.
And with that privilege, Lord, comes the call that we are then to take up our cross and to follow you. Lord, if we want to be your disciple, that, that is the call. Might we do it joyfully? Might we, Lord, be able to see where we live life according to our own sort of set of values apart from you, where it's our glory and our ease and our security and accumulation of things that, that become the guiding factor, Lord, that we would be willing to suffer shame, suffer rejection. Lord, in a, a world whose worldview more and more is turning away from Christianity, Lord, denying your truth and, and your reality. Might, Lord, we have boldness, Lord, to be loving to our neighbor, but at the same time, Lord, willing to follow you, whatever the cost. Lord, might you encourage and help your people in that.